Blog Talk Radio. Diamonds Late Night.
Dr. Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Hey, straight ahead, we're talking about the latest food trends, strategies for reversing prediabetes, and why more young women are having heart attacks. But right now, we're going to talk about dreams. Everyone tells you to chase your dreams and follow your passion, but what happens when you chase those dreams and fail? What then? Well, you know, I had a dream to make diabetes outreach dazzle, and um, I did that starting back in 2003. And uh, recently I shared my story with the Beyond Type 2 website about uh, being a diabetes advocate. And that walk down memory lane brought back some really painful memories for me about multiple failed attempts at gaining sponsorship from diabetics. Uh, recently, I lost a good friend uh, to suicide, and so I really wanted to own the fact that if someone out there thinks my life is perfect, it really isn't. I, I've had a lot of missteps and failures in my life, and uh, I want to tell everyone things. Uh, everything gets a little bit better as you go forward. It just gets better. Uh, psychology today even agrees with me is that people facing similar situations break, uh, who might have had failures need to break down their goals into aspects that they can control and the aspects they can't control. For me, with DivaBetic, I knew how to put on the show. I knew how to do fabulous presentations. What I couldn't control is how sponsors were dealing with those fabulous ideas. And so what did I do? I um, focused on the programming, which is what um, – psychology today told me to do. They said to take, sit down and really improve the skills and planning and knowledge and preparation of what you can control. So for me, it meant like, why not focus more on programming? We're talking, this was about 2008, which, hey, is the anniversary when we started podcasting. So I took the ideas of wanting to put on uh, wellness programming all over the country, which I had been doing, uh, and now without sponsorship, I wanted to continue to outreach to people, so I had the opportunity to start podcasting, and through that experience, I was able to really flex my creativity and begin to empower people in new ways about learning about diabetes and diabetes wellness. That actually led to the annual Diabetes Mystery Podcast, and that experience of the Mystery Podcast, where I kind of took a step back from trying to get sponsorship and just worked on my programming with DivaBetic and my partners and um, fellow educators and advisory board to make the messaging uh, as informative as possible as well as entertaining really paid off. Because last year I was approached by Beringer Ingelheim to submit a proposal for an outreach program. And um, Fortunately for me, I thought of the Mystery Podcast, and that led us to the formation or creation of Clued In, the first annual Diabetes and Heart Health Escape Room experience. And so I'm just living proof that failure actually made me fabulous. And I love the fl my flaws because I do think they make us flawless. And if you're struggling right now, maybe with your diabetes health or with some other issues in your life, I just want you to know that things get better. So on that note, uh, I always thought it was great to play music when you're doing diabetes outreach. I did it at every uh, outreach program I ever did, and I love to do it on the podcast. You know, that's why March's musical inspiration, Heart, released uh, three top ten hits in the 1980s. They, they also embarked on a 77-city tour. The band scored their highest chart single of all time, a version of the, of the ballad, Tell It Like It Is, back in 1980. Here it is. It was originally performed and released by Aaron Neville, uh, courtesy of Sony Music.
Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Medic, and that's our studio band, Hat Heart, in the background, singing Tell It Like It Is. You know, I just got a text asking me, is Clute in for free, Max, or do you have to pay? Well, the truth is it's a free program, so you could register for free. There's one hook, a little hitch, though, and that's you have to either take the diabetes 60-second uh, risk test for type 2 diabetes, or you could take a heart IQ quiz if you're living with diabetes. The whole idea behind Clued In was to become more proactive about your care. And, you know, when you're talking about a risk for type 2 diabetes, a term that often comes up is free diabetes. So I thought uh, before March 26th, we should break it down with some awesome educators, which is we're doing tonight. And my first guest is a nationally recognized dietitian, certified diabetes educator, who's written a book. Yes, she's the author of Pre-Diabetes, A Complete Guide to Diabetes Weight Loss Week by Week. Please welcome back to the show, Jill Weissenberger. Hi, Jill. Hello, I'm glad to be here. You know, thank you, thank you. I, I'm sure... Uh, thank you for joining us. You know, I'm sure you know the statistic that one-third of everyone living with diabetes doesn't even know they have it. A lot of people think they're in denial. Some people just think they, they're not taking the active, uh, active steps to become proactive. But then there's a large percentage of people who are going to the doctors, and they're finding out that they're living with pre-diabetes. And I think that term, as I've seen on the Divabetic website and from our Facebook posting, is a little bit confusing to people. Can you explain uh, what the term prediabetes means? Well, sure. So both diabetes and prediabetes are defined by blood sugar levels. So if your blood sugar is higher than normal but lower than the level of diabetes, then you're diagnosed with prediabetes. Prediabetes is pre for type 2 diabetes, so I want to make sure that's very clear. We're not talking about type 1 or anything other than um, type 2. So prediabetes is pre-type 2 diabetes. And so you'll see high blood pressure sometimes along with the high blood sugar. You might see fatty liver. You might see high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol. So it's a lot of the same things that we see that are metabolically um, awry in type 2 diabetes, we might see them in prediabetes as well. And, you know, I follow you on uh, Twitter, your Nutrition Jill, we should say, or at Nutrition Jill, and you posted something which I love, which was, um, if you have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, will diet, weight loss, and exercise give you a clean bill of health? And the question was, can you reverse type 2 diabetes and prediabetes? And your little post had, like, several things um, with it which said maybe it's not a cure, take action today, lose weight if necessary, and it's complicated. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of break this down because reverse, reversing is not a term that I love, but I, I really loved how you presented this information. So the question was, can you reverse type 2 diabetes and prediabetes? And the... Um, First one was you had a green check that said maybe healthy eating, exercise, weight loss helps some people reverse course. Uh, talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Okay. So type 2 diabetes tends to be a progressive disorder. And as people have had it longer, they lose more ability to produce insulin. So it's the beta cells of the pancreas that produce insulin. So the longer you have had Type 2 diabetes, 
the less likely you are to have really good, adequate insulin-producing abilities. So you, I always tell people your best chance to reverse course is today because it is progressive. So that's why I have the maybe. So if somebody's had diabetes for a very long time and they're taking many medications or they've maybe even taking insulin, chances are they're not going to be able to get rid of type 2 diabetes with weight loss and exercise and, and healthy eating. Very likely they're going to improve it. But they might not be able to get rid of it because they've lost a lot of that insulin producing abilities. Somebody with prediabetes is in the perfect position to reverse course because, yes, that person has already lost some ability to produce insulin, but not very much at this point. So weight loss, exercise, healthy eating all work. But I will tell you, not everybody with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes even needs to lose any weight or should lose weight because there are plenty of people who are very slim. So for these people, we're not going to focus on weight loss. We're going to focus on exercise and healthy eating. So that's the maybe. I'm sorry, continue, and then I'll, I'll interject. Oh, I was just going to say that's the maybe because some people will be able to and other people will not, and it's largely based on how much insulin-producing abilities they have. I love it. Thank you for getting us clued in about this. All right, so your next one was, it's not a cure. We might reverse diabetes and, or put it into remission, but we don't have a cure. I think that is such an important statement because I do think when people think reverse, they think of erase completely, and putting into remission, uh, I think it's a really intelligent way to clarify what's going on. So explain that. The American Diabetes Association has a term remission, and that has to do with having normal blood sugars for a year. So we see this sometimes with a lot of weight loss. We see it sometimes with metabolic surgery and also with just good old hard, uh, different types of hard work with diet, exercise, and so forth. So if you have normal blood sugars without needing medication, we say that's a remission. And if you can go five years, then that is a long-term remission. But often what happens is that it doesn't last because of that loss of beta cells that I was just talking about. But also there's things we don't know. There's genetic factors and other lifestyle factors and things that we just don't know. So if somebody is off medication and managing normal healthy blood sugar levels after having had type 2 diabetes, then we would say that you are, you are in a remission because you are managing it with your healthy lifestyle. As soon as you lose that healthy lifestyle, we won't expect you to be in control anymore. So that's the difference. It's not a cure. You're in remission because of the way you're managing it. All right, then the next one's take action today, but I'm going to uh, jump over that for a minute and go back to what I was just talking about before you came on the show and failure because obviously, uh, I don't know if it's obvious, but it seems to be, healthy eating, exercise, weight loss, a lot of those three things come with a lot of failure for people. <laughs> a lot of people have tested <laughs> and didn't work out for them. And so when you when you've tried to lose weight, specifically, I think you know the media focuses on weight loss around reversing type two diabetes or pre diabetes. 
um, or even putting into remission. A lot of, you know, we know that so many more people fail at main, uh, weight loss than ma- being able to maintain the weight loss. So I'm just curious, mm-hmm. you know, term pre-diabetes, in some ways to me is setting up people for more of a failure as much as I think it's so important in uh, because of all the outreach I've done across the country but talking to so many women who would have lo- who regret being informed that they had type 2 diabetes that they would have appreciated getting a pre-diabetes diagnosis and being able to be right there at the crossroads and take a different route to avoid living with diabetes type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. so yeah so I'm just they, curious, they agree. As, as a really re- well uh, nationally recognized nutritionist as well registered dietitian certified educator like how how do you deal with failure because that to me seems to sum up this whole thing it just seems like we're putting another load on people we know i just posted something yesterday about uh not saying sorry but being more thankful so instead of i'm saying sorry i'm sorry to interrupt you jill i should say thank you jill for sharing so much information i would like to say something yes. else now and so I'm curious, you know, because women specifically, which is our biggest audience, are really overburdened today with taking care of their family, maybe also taking care of their parents. The last one on the list is them. And this kind of, uh, this new diagnosis of prediabetes could be a little bit overwhelming. And they could have failed multiple times prior to that diagnosis to avoid that diagnosis. Right. Okay. I'm not really sure where the question was in that because I, I, I got lost a little bit. But um, I, I think you're asking me, how do I talk with people who feel overwhelmed and feel like failures because they've been diagnosed with prediabetes? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think a lot okay. of people would say prediabetes is another is saying I fail, you know, because I think a lot of people are trying to achieve healthy goals and then they they are diagnosed with prediabetes. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, a lot of people put so much emphasis on the lifestyle aspect. And I would prefer to think of this as lifestyle solutions because it's not really a lifestyle disease. It is very much related to genetics as well. So even though you might do something you live a perfectly healthful life. That doesn't mean you're not going to get diabetes or prediabetes. You might be doing all the, the lifestyle habits and strategies that are laid out in front of you, and that's still not a guarantee. So the idea of failure, I, I like to get rid of that right away. And, and even still, there's always a new start. And if we can start with a, with a proper helpful attitude. I work a lot with people with their with their language instead of saying I can't do that. I can't have I can't keep cookies in the house without binging on them. I want them to say I haven't yet learned to keep cookies in the house without eating too many. So I think a lot of it has to do with just reframing like you were just talking about on your social media post. It's, we can say things and do things in different ways. We also can think things in different ways. And sometimes I'll have people think, well, what if my sister, my neighbor, my best friend was telling me this story? Would I be as hard on them as I'm being on myself? This is always no. So I think it starts with just self-kindness 
and 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 just working with a more positive framework and a more positive mindset. I love that answer. Thank you for making a sense out of my nonsensical question, but that's what I wanted to get at is this <laughs> idea that there is a lot of blame and shame put on these terms, you know, that come with it. There's stigmas attached, we know, to type 2 diabetes. In fact, a lot of people with type 1 feel the stigma of type 2 even though they're not living with type 2 diabetes because the general population doesn't really understand the difference or care to know the difference between the two. So I think it's important for people to remember just what you said and that it's about reframing and choosing to take advantage of this knowledge and put the best foot forward. Mm-hmm. Perfect. You said it better than I did. Not really. I, I read your stuff all the time, and I just do it back to you. But you know, you know what I'm excited about, Jill, is it's National Nutrition Month, which I saw you posting, and I thought we would take a minute to discuss the new nutrition label um, packages. I read somewhere that the FDA officially is going to change the nutrition facts label um, date. It's now going to be uh, January 2020 instead of this July. And I just wanted to find out, like, what are the big takeaways? Because, again, for someone pre-diabetes, I would think the nutrition facts label would be an asset, or as I like to say with my Sherlock Holmes hat, a clue to a healthier life. <laughs> so um, what, I, what would I be looking at, and what's so different about it? The main things that are different about it is that sugar, added sugar, is highlighted now. The serving size is highlighted better. And there's less emphasis on, on total fat. They've kept the emphasis on the types of fat, but there's less emphasis on total fat. The labels now have more of a focus that aligns with our understanding of nutrition science. And because most people uh, in the country are overweight or, or have either overweight or obesity, that we have to put more emphasis on the the serving size, so that's just highlighted better. It's bigger. And that's the first place I always want my patients or my clients to go because every number on there relates to that. So if it says a half a cup or five crackers, then it means exactly that. Everything, the calories, the sodium, the carbohydrates, everything is related to that serving size. Some serving sizes have changed as well. And um, so, like I said, I usually have people look first at the, at the serving size, and if they're concerned about diabetes, I have them look at the total carbohydrate after that. If their concern is weight, I'd like them to look at the calories. And for heart health, I like people to look at saturated fat. And for blood pressure, sodium. So all of these important, these things are important to all of us. But sometimes, just depending on what the emphasis is of that person on that particular visit, we're going to focus in on some of those other things. One thing that I like about the new label is that it has under total carbohydrates, it has fiber, and it has total sugars, and then under that, it has the added sugars. So the old label would just tell us sugars, but we didn't know if that's 12 grams of sugar because of that's what's in a cup of milk, or is it 10 or 12 grams of added sugar in the form of granulated white sugar, brown sugar, honey, 
molasses, something like that. And now we're going to know. So I think that's important. I love it. I think that's great. Wow, that's Patricia Alexandros who's working the fire truck side because that means, Jill Weissenberger, you have to take a seat in the hot seat. You're going to have one question, kind of like in the Miss Universe or USA contest, uh, contest. I'm going to put the rest of the contestants in a soundproof booth. Is that really true, do you think? I don't know. Anyhow, you're going to have one minute to answer this question and help us clear up the chaos around some health topics that we're reading on the web today because, let's face it, everyone from Wendy Williams to the Kardashians have something to say about health. Um, and those are two of my biggest sources, by the way. Anyhow, that's not true. Here we go. Are you ready, Jill? I don't know, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I read somewhere, I'll say Us Magazine, drinking milk in the morning may reduce blood glucose levels throughout the day, which could benefit those with type 2 diabetes, new research has found. What's your feeling on this? This was reported by the Journal of Dairy Science, which is kind of slightly uh, interesting right there to check out the sources where we get the information. And uh, But they're really claiming that it could reduce your blood glucose levels. So should we all... Be drinking more milk in the morning? Well, I do like milk, and I think milk is a great nutrient-dense food. But I do remember that study, and it was using a high-protein milk-based beverage, which is not the same thing as milk. So I think the headlines that went into Twitter and blogs and some of the mainstream news use the word milk, but it's actually a high-protein milk-based beverage. So I don't think that the study even applies to real-life situations. And besides, I would never use one study, particularly a small study, to change my way of eating. So I think if you like milk in the morning, drink milk in the morning. If you're counting your carbs, remember there's 12 grams of carbohydrate in one cup of milk. So if you're going to add milk, you'll probably have to take away 12 grams of carbohydrate from something else, like a half a cup of juice or an orange, a slice of toast, something like that. So the long and the short of it is if you like milk, drink it. Don't worry about it being in the morning. Great job. I love it. Thank you so much for being about this, uh, part of the show tonight. And we're going to be talking about more milk options with our next guest coming up right after this song. Our next song from the rock and roll band Heart was written by the famous writer and producer Mutt Lang in the 70s. It was originally intended for Don Henley to record. But 20 years later, Ann Wilson picked it up and they put it on their 1990 album Brigade. It's become one of their hugest hits, reaching number two in the U.S. Here's all I want to do is make love to you, courtesy of Sony Music.
Dr. Bobby's late and I'm your host, Mr. Diabetic. And hey, you should find out the story behind all you want. To, all I want to do is make love to you because it's about a woman picking up a hitchhiker. It's much more uh, strange than you could actually imagine. <laughs> Just a little insight since we're going rock and holy roll tonight on the podcast. Um, my next guest is a clinical associate professor of Boston University, and she's appeared on numerous major media outlets discussing nutrition and healthy lifestyle topics. She's also the author of the book, Nutrition and You, and recently she launched her very own podcast called Spot On. Uh, please welcome Dr. Joan Selji Blake. Hi, Dr. Joan. I am so excited to be here. Well, we're thr- you know, you and I are Italian, so I'm thrilled to have you on the show, by the way. I'm, I'm just okay. uh, and not only excited about that, I'm also excited because you're the first person I've ever interviewed who's received a good housekeeping seal of approval. I read that Good Housekeeping magazine named you an expert to follow on Twitter for healthy eating. How did you manage that? I, I love oh, it. I always good. wanted a good housekeeping. <laughs> I'll tell you, my Italian mother was so proud of me to get that darn seal. Uh, so it just happened that someone was following all of my uh, social media and my writings and um, just was kind enough to, um, you know, put that seal on saying that I, that I was credible and, and based on science. And, excuse me, and what I you know, try to do is stick to the science but make it really palatable for the average Joe and Josephine on the street. So um, I'm, I'm a very, very lucky nutrition um, professional. I love it. Well, I, I, if I, I was, that would be a huge honor. I, look, I still look for that label on things, uh, that seal of approval. I don't know about everybody else, but I still do. So I was <laughs> doing some research on you, and I saw that uh, you wrote an article for U.S. News and World Report about the hottest food trends in 2019. According yes. to dietitians, and it'd be kind of fun to go over a couple of these trends with you. Uh, sure. We agreed that we would make these for everyone. This isn't in specifically for people with diabetes. So I just want to mm-hmm. make sure people listening want to talk to um, an educator like Jill Weisenberger or the local educator in their town about what works for them and their diabetes wellness. The first trend we're talking about, though, is less sugar. Um, right. And I do think Jill just talked about this new nutritional uh, fats label is partially behind the trend because mm-hmm. people are so concerned about sugar and they're really um, <clears throat> much more dialed into how much they're consuming. Uh, what do you What do you want to say about that trend? Well, you know, it's based on science, Max, because we know that um, a, a diet that has too much added sugars. Now, we're not talking about natural sugars. We love oranges and apples and uh, milk. That's fine. But the added sugars uh, in our diet can increase the risk of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. And, you know, we right now are having too much added sugars in our diet. And we're not so much eating them, Max. We are guzzling them because the top um, providers of added sugar in the diet are sweetened beverages. And um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna put my professor hat on, and I'm gonna quiz you. What do you think the top three sources of sweetened beverages are in the diets of Americans? Uh, uh, fruits and vegetables, or wait, what was the question? No, beverages, sweetened beverages. What do you think the top sources uh, of of sweetened beverages are? Soda, fruit juice, right, and. Um, 
Ice tea. Oh, you are you are a rock star. So it's soda, <laughs> sodas, fruit drinks, and coffee and tea beverages. And I think that last category, coffee and tea beverages, uh, is new to the game here because we used to think it was energy drinks or sports drinks, but we are now uh, guzzling so many sweetened coffee and tea drinks that that now has become a major source of added sugars in our diet. So we really need to bring this in and, and get a look at this. And I know you talked about with my good friend Jill the new um, – Nutrition Facts Panel, and I cannot wait for this to come out because once people see the amount of added sugar that are on the foods that they are and the beverages they are consuming, they are it's going to be a real eye opener. Well, you know, I know your new podcast spot on targets college kids. I used to work in the high school with a program mm-hmm. called Energy where we would host a sugar a Shocktober of waking people up about the sugar in drinks. And mm-hmm. Arizona iced tea comes in these oversized bottles and the amount of sugar in one of those bottles that you see kids drinking two or three times throughout the day is really a wake up call. That mm-hmm. is uh so frightening. So I agree with you. It's uh, we asked our listeners if they if they thought they could cut back on sh- on sugar, and about 80% think they couldn't. But I think you just gave them good advice. Maybe look at the things they're drinking first before they focus on what they're eating. That's exactly correct. And one more thing on this, because I don't know if you know this, Dr. Joan, but I host a mystery podcast every year in September, and my Ooh. character, Mr. Dietetic, is a... Um, He's he's a count he's culinary challenge, but that's not going to stop him from a catering job. So he's uh, competing at the Gingerbread Man Cookie Jamboree in Central Park, and he's determined to make his Gingerbread Man cookies without sugar because hey, that's healthier. But I just heard on a recent podcast that you were on that cutting out the sugar in your baked goods is not going to give terrific results. No, it is not. You know, when you try to take the sugar out of your gingerbread or you take a recipe or you take the sugar out of um, your grandmother's oatmeal cookies, you end up with grandmother hockey pucks because sugar definitely has a function in the baking process to tenderize it and make it moist. And, of course, the taste is is, um, you all have an innate desire for that sweet taste. So we don't need to take it all out. What we need to do is reduce the frequency of our sugary sweets and treats and beverages. And, you know, I've said this for decades, that there's nothing new here. We have been drinking soda forever. We have been having, you know, candy and cookies forever. But when I was growing up, Max, in my Italian home in New Jersey, you had sugar, sweetened beverages on a holiday, your birthday. You had candy um, on a holiday and maybe your birthday, too. Maybe you had dessert on Sunday at the family dinner. But you didn't drink it all day long, the sweetened beverages, the soda. You didn't have candy every day. You didn't have dessert every day. So it's not that, oh, my goodness gracious, all of a sudden these foods are a no-no. It's what the issue is. It's the frequency of them. So it, what we have to do is go back to the, the, my Italian grandmother and your Italian grandmother and eat like they did, where it was an every-so-often type of food, but not an everyday food. I love it. I totally agree with you. I, I remember soda pop. That's what we used to call it in Rochester. 
just mm-hmm. coming out for once in a while, not every day. All right, now the next food trend we're talking about is non-dairy milk. You know, um, this is really hot right now. When I go to the grocery store, there's everything from coconut to almond to oat milk. And, you know, the big takeaway for me, though, that I wanted to talk about with you is about the calcium and some of the vitamins that uh, these non-dairy milks, do they have it or don't they have it compared to uh, cow's milk? Right, right. Great question. You know, uh, I I grew up with cow's milk. I drink skim milk because skin, uh, skim milk will provide calcium and vitamin D and potassium, which is another fall short nutrient. What I mean by that is that most Americans are falling short of calcium adequate amount of calcium, vitamin D, and potassium. So milk has got it all at bargain prices here. So it's really quite inexpensive, especially compared to some of these more designer milks and sweetened beverages. So one needs to make sure that when we're swapping out cow's milk, nonfat, that we're swapping in a beverage that's going to provide the same amount of vitamin D, calcium, uh, and potassium in some of these beverages may not. So you've got to make sure it's for, for, for sure that the vitamin D and the calcium has been added and fortified, and you can easily look at the ingredients label and look at the daily uh, value on some of these beverages. The potassium may be lower because um, milk is a great source of potassium, and something like an almond milk doesn't have as much. It does have some, but not as much. So there is... Um, you know, uh, uh, benefits um, for some people who maybe don't like the taste of milk or they're, they are lactose intolerant and they don't want to have it or they're just looking for another flavor. But you got to weigh the, you know, weigh the benefits um, um, against what you may be losing. And if you're not going to drink the dairy, then, then make sure you're making up for that calcium, vitamin D, and potassium in other, um, you know, foods uh, uh, on your plate or in your glass. And can we just go back for a minute? Because some of the labeling on these non-dairy milks is really confusing. And I'll be honest, personally, like I enjoy almond milk, but Mm -hmm. I had no idea how much sugar was in the almond milk I enjoyed. And, you know, this is really, this is like going back to what I was talking to Jill about, about the chaos in nutrition. And, you know, here, and someone, like one of Paltrow, I'm making it up, is telling me, oh, Max, have almond milk, almond milk. I go get it. Of course I'm going to get vanilla. I love vanilla. And suddenly I get home, and it's got as much sugar as one of those soda pops you and I were talking about in our family's backyard. So, I mean, that gets really confusing, too. I think I'm doing something good for myself, and then I turn around and I look. If I look at that nutrition label, it's totally the opposite. Right. So what they have here, and this is where this uh, new nutrition fact label is going to spell this out to you quite nicely, Max, because what's happening in in milk, cow's milk, you have naturally occurring milk sugar called lactose, which is beautiful. It's fine. It's perfectly great. But in the almond milk, if it's been sweetened, and you can look at that quickly by the ingredients label, and I'm looking at a label right now, and the first ingredient is almond milk, and the second one is cane sugar. So the ingredients are listed by descending order by weight. So the first ingredient, thank goodness, is almond milk, but the next one is going to be uh, uh, cane sugar. So and then becomes all of the vitamins and minerals. So you you and right now on the label, you're not able to tease out by looking at the grams of sugar if it's natural like that in skim milk versus 
been added as in the almond milk. But that soon will come clear when that that label uh, gets changed over. For now, if added sugars are not listed on that, you as a consumer can go to the ingredients listing and then see if it's been added. Regular skim milk, there isn't any sugar cane, any added sugar, uh, unless, of course, it's sweetened. Um, But the uh, almond milk, it can come unsweetened and it can come sweetened. So you just have to be a fact finder uh, when you go food shopping. Or a detective, as we like to say. <laughs> Dr. Joan, Southie Blake. I want to keep saying your middle, your your second name is Solange. For some reason, it's been stuck in my head all day. I saw something with Solange Knowles, and I just want to call you Dr. Solange. So in, in yeah, our hot quiz, like I'm going to call you Dr. Solange, because <laughs> you could be related to uh, Beyonce Knowles. All right, Dr. Okay, Solange. Okay. I mean, Dr. Joan. Please have a seat in our hot seat. Um, Patricia Addy Gentle is working the siren. You're going to have a minute to answer this question, and we're going to put the other contestants in the soundproof booth. All right. Um, you wrote about this, actually. Your friend Bill had a father who died uh, of a second heart attack at age 67. His mother, brother, uncles, and cousins all have high blood pressure and have the risk factors for heart disease. Bill's starting to see his blood pressure rise, and so the question is, can someone like Bill overcome their genetic risk for heart disease? And if so, how could they do that? Well, this is an interesting article that I wrote. It was actually based on, this is a true story, by the way. Bill is a good friend of mine. Um, but it, uh, there was a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine that uncovered that a healthy lifestyle can dramatically, actually, reduce your risk of heart disease, even though you know, mom, dad, and the grandfather all um, have this history. And what in the study, what research, researchers did, they looked at, at over 50,000 adults that were at risk genetically for heart disease, and they looked at other lifestyle factors, you know, whether they smoked or overweight or they exercised, and then they looked at lifestyle issues like, you know, did they eat a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables, whole grains? Did they have fish? Did they have dairy products in their diet? Did they use more whole grains versus uh, refined grains and less processed meat? And what they came out is, is if they met one or more of these healthy factors, in other words, they had more fruits and vegetables and whole grains, lean dairy and fish in their diet, they were able to lower their risk by about 45%, even though they were genetically predisposed to this. So I love this, this, this story here. I love the ending to this story. It's really a research article saying that, okay, you can't pick your family. You can pick your friends. You can't pick your family. But guess what? If your family hands you something, you still have some ability to take control. And in the case of my good friend Bill, he did that. And he really is, you know, his blood pressure is down to where it should be. He's feeling fabulous. So, you know, it's one of these things, Max, that we're all dealt something in life. We all genetically have something in our lives. You know, my I have, I have diabetes in my family. So, you know, uh, I'm always on top of it. I'm watching my things. I'm watching it for my children. We are at a higher risk, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get it. But let's do what we can to possibly prevent it, and the same thing goes with heart disease. So I'm ecstatic that you can fe- you can fight heart disease with a knife and a fork. And you know what I want to say from our diabetic crew, you're getting the Ooh la la. 
Oh, Dr. Joan, I can't believe you earned that tonight. That's amazing. That's great news. And we're finding out more about heart health and diabetes at the first ever Diabetes and Heart Health Escape Room Experience called Clued In on March 26th. Hey, that's National Diabetes Alert Day right here in New York City from 5 to 10 p.m. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've got to have you back, and we'll talk more about Spot On and what you're doing to help empower college-age students to stay healthy. I know you got a new podcast out about uh, being healthy on uh, the cheap. So that's kind of exciting. Thanks. Can't wait to tune in. Thank you, yeah, Dr. Thank Down. You. Thank you, sir. Our, all right. Our next guest is a big heart fan. So I'm going to play this song for her. But first, I have to tell you, yes, I know I'm rock. I'm all about um, R&B. I was going to say rock and roll. Who would I be talking about? I felt like Donnie Marie there. But hey, I once did see Heart in concert. And you know who opened for them was John Cougar Mellencamp. And I was reading about Hart getting ready for this show, and it was so funny that when they were touring together, because John Cougar Mellencamp was opening for Hart, his song, Jack and Diane, was climbing up the charts, and Hart's album was kind of bombing. And so he went to them and said, hey, this is a quote, seeing your album is a turkey and mine is a hit, can we swap places? And you know what Ann and Nancy Wilson said? I love this. They declined him and said, hey, the tour has already been sold out as you being the opening act. So you're opening for us and we're headlining. You know what? There are not enough women in rock and roll, and I just want to applaud Hart one more time as we listen to Barracuda, courtesy of Sony Music. Oh, I love that. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. David Bedrick. We're talking about some rock and roll women. Right now, we've got a mother of two young women living with type 1 diabetes. She is often awakened in the middle of the night to find one or both of her children suffering from severe hypoglycemia until she made a choice. And she did something about it. This is an amazing rock and roll story. I am so glad and grateful to have her as a guest. Please welcome to the show the amazing Pamela Hayward. Hi, Pamela. Thank you so much. It is such an honor to be on the show, and I have smiled the entire time. I love listening to everyone's stories, and your music is amazing. And I thought you were going to play Heart. Who will you run to for me? Because... As a single mom, I didn't have anyone to run to except for myself. So, um, but I do love the heart. I love the heart music. So, thank you. Uh, well, next time you're on the show, we'll get that song for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you awesome. know, earlier, Pella, we were talking about um, type 2 diabetes, but now we're flipping the script and talking about type 1 diabetes and how that changed your life and what it really uh, opened the door to your passion. So, tell us first. Just go back in time as a, mo- a young mother uh, raising two daughters. How were, tell us the story of their diagnosis. Yeah, um, I worked in corporate America at the time, and Taylor was three years old. And she just one day within a week, she started, uh, you know, wetting the bed, laying on the couch, wetting the couch. And and it happened really fast, and then she was extremely thirsty. And when I say that, I want to clarify that literally, like, white foam was in the corners of her mouth. She was very thirsty. And I, you know, 
guess what I did? I packed her up a Reese's cup and a Sprite to to bribe her to go to the doctor because diabetes did not run in my family. And when I got there and they told me she her blood sugar was in the 900 levels and that I needed to get her to the ER immediately and I was 45 minutes away, I had no clue. And it, we were two weeks into the hospital my life had changed drastically, you know, all the risk of, of what could happen to my child. And it was probably the most devastating time in my life to hear that. Um, and at the time, the insulin was so different because it would peak at certain times. So I was force feeding a three-year-old to eat 15 grams of carbs at, you know, uh, 7.45 in the morning, uh, 9.45 for snack, noon. Um, 2.45 snack, 6 o'clock dinner, 8.45 at night, just her begging me not to force her to eat, and I had to because the insulin was very different. And then lo and behold, you know, when you think you can't handle, you have all that you can handle, and you can't handle any more on your plate, um, we put my second daughter in a trial net study, and I knew that she had tested positive um, and that she would definitely, at some point in time in her life, develop diabetes. And she was 12 years old, and I was having a dinner party, and uh, she walked in and said, I feel strange. And she had fallen down when she was playing um, basketball in the front yard. And I just, <laughs> it was like a Lucille Ball moment. I just put my knife down. I was chopping veggies, and I said, excuse me, I've got to check my daughter's blood sugar. And I did, and the meter went round and round and round, and it said hi. And I said, I'm really sorry, but I need to take my daughter to the hospital. She has diabetes. And I remember people looking at me going, don't be so pessimistic. And I was like, nope, I know exactly what I'm getting into right now. And we went to the hospital, and thankfully, instead of keeping us two weeks, they kept us for a few hours because at that point in time, I was a pro. But um, – that's that's what happened, and we never had you know type one, nor do we have type two that ran in our family. And I mean, was it difficult sending those daughters to school and having them out of your oh. uh, sight, given the circumstances oh of what you went through with Taylor at first, and then both children? I mean, it had to be a little bit. Oh, I'm just wondering what that was like. Um, Max, it was it was interesting. Um, I actually, because I did at the time work in corporate America, and I would leave every day to go check Taylor's blood sugar, and I would, if there was a high or a low, I'd have to leave and go address it, and finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm traveling around in Atlanta traffic, trying to take care of my daughter, trying to work, and I decided to keep her home, and I put her in a church preschool program. And she was there for a day, and I'll never forget her coming outside. And it, it literally brings tears to my eyes right now talking about it because it's something I haven't thought about. And and she said, Mommy, I had such a great day. And I had prepared the staff, you know, we've got to check her blood sugar, and here's, you know, here's what you do if her blood sugar's high, low, call me, whatever. And I was brought in in front of the director of the preschool that day, and he said with her, we cannot keep your daughter at our preschool because it's too much of a risk. And if you have a child with special needs, you need to quit your job and stay home. 
And I immediately took her right across town. I had could, I had to explain to her she can't go back to that school the next day. And then I was panicked trying to find a replacement situation because I had a lady that stayed home that I'd hired to stay home with them during the day. But I wanted them to have interaction with their peers. And when I got to this preschool, the, the director said, we've never had someone there at our school that has type 1 diabetes. But you know what, Pamela? This will be our first. We'll bring all the nurses in to train us. And i got to tell you, it was the best experience of my life. I then realized that Taylor, at the age of four at the time, had a chance to live a normal life. Wow. I love it. All right. So now, fast forward. Here you are with both daughters, uh, managing both. I'm I'm shaking my head and making arm gestures like you're juggling this along with your full-time job and everything else. And this idea hits you. (laughs) What happened? Well, um, the girls would turn to juice and candy to treat their low blood sugars, um, preferably Starburst. And um, because it's a different sugar, it's fructose and sucrose, that has to be converted into glucose, and glucose is the sugar that feeds your brain. And I would notice that it would delay bringing their blood sugar up, and therefore they would overtreat the condition, and then their blood sugar would spike. So we were skiing one day in Colorado, and please don't think that I had the luxury to be skiing in Colorado every year. It was literally a one-time trip. And we had all the kids, you know, know, dressed. They had all their skiing gear on. We were at the bottom of the gondola waiting up to go on top of the mountain. And both the girls had a low blood sugar. You know, anything affects your blood sugar levels, barometric pressure in the atmosphere, stress, I mean, you name it. So we had had a very healthy breakfast, her blood sugar plummeted. I'm like, ah, we go get them undressed, treat it. And I look up at that mountain and I thought, how can I be safe and know, and as a mother feel secure, that I'm sending them up and they're going to make it down? Can they carry juice boxes with them? No. Can they carry these big bulky glucose tabs they don't like? No. What can I do? And I started thinking back to really quick, fast deliveries of like stand back and VC powders. And that's where it hit me. I need to develop a very light instant dissolved glucose powder that's in a 15 gram packet that can fit in your pocket wallet. And the second it hits your saliva, it dissolves. It goes into your buckle and directly into your bloodstream. And guess what? It's pre-measured. There's no, you don't have to calculate how many carbs or grams that you need in a terrifying situation. It takes the guesswork out for you, and it raises your blood sugar super fast, and your blood sugar doesn't spike. And these little packets of glucose powder, as a mom, give me um, the security every day to know that they're in the girls, you know, gym bags. They're by their bed at night when they have those 3 o'clock, you know, low blood sugars. And it's like a security blanket for them. And I'm very proud that I can invent something that was pure, all natural, that is like a treat even to people that doesn't have diabetes. And it has brought my oldest daughter, who is more of a brittle diabetic, and that, yes, that is true. Both the girls have the same condition, but Taylor's more susceptible to seizures, very terrifying low blood sugars, um, 
She's been in DKA several times in the hospital, and I have actually pulled her out of a seizure. And when I saw it happening, I could just grab a packet of my product and tap it in her mouth and bring her out of it. So as a mom, it was a blessing for me to give this not only to my daughters, but to other people with diabetes as a tool to always have something with them so they can be prepared and rest assured at all times. I love it. I, you know, I want to just go back for a minute because I think that you made such an important statement that we have a lot of mothers who turn in and we tune in, and we have a lot of people who are newly diagnosed. And this whole idea of the roller coaster effect of over treating um, a low and then having to treat the high, and how exhausting that is—not just for the person living with diabetes, but like you were explaining, for the person who's helping the person with diabetes, whether it be a mother, sister, brother, father, coworker, and so on. And I think that what you did, again, I just want to talk about this, is the simplicity of being able to treat that and kind of avoid that whole roller coaster effect. Yes. Yes. And, you know, and i got to tell you, people with diabetes, they're my heroes. They have to carry so much stuff with them to be prepared to manage the complications that come alongside with this disease. So, but you know what? They have so much to manage. There's times where they may be out for a walk and their blood sugar is low and they're like, oh my God, I forgot to bring something with me. So that's where their loved ones can kick in and keep packets with them because we all make mistakes. You know, we all have so much to manage in our lives. So I gave people a tool that they can use to always be prepared and have something in case of emergency. And um, I'm just so proud that I could help manage this disease, which is 24-7, 365, in a more simplistic manner. I love it. I love this product so much, listeners. We're giving it out at Clued In, the first ever diabetes and heart health escape room experience. Everyone who attends Clued In is going to receive a free glucose SOS packet. I can't wait. I think it's so great. Um, Pamela, it's just amazing. Oh, no, Pamela, do you know what that means? It means you are contested on tonight's Magic Ball Health Game. That's right, uh, Pamela Hayward. You're going to be a contestant to find out how much you know about Heart Health IQ with a series of questions with the help of our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. I don't think Pamela was prepared to be part of the game show. Were you, Pamela? I was not. Well, get ready is all I have to say to you. Please have a seat. That drum roll was just, Patricia, you are really getting good on the drums. I just want to say that. (laughs) Really made a difference today. Um, Please take a seat. We're going to ask you a series of questions. You're going to help us raise heart. You're going to help us raise awareness for heart health and diabetes in our magic ball game with music from heart. So your first question, Pamela, is, are you ready? How many times do you think your heart beats today? How many times? Um, how many times do you think your heart beats today? Is it fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, a hundred and fifty thousand, or two hundred thousand? Hold on one second. I want to see if uh, I want to see if she's got the drum roll again. 
And your answer is? About 115,000 times a day. 150,000 times a day. Is that your 15, final answer? 115,200 times a day. All right. I'm going to tell you that wasn't even one of the answers. It's either 150,000 or 100,000. Which one would you prefer? One in between those two. Okay. Uh, I would say I'm things. closer to 100,000 times a day. Oh, my God. What, what, is, what happened there, um, Patricia? Pamela is absolutely right. Uh, the average heart usually is beating about 80 beats per minute. So your heart beats about 4,800 times an hour. And over the course of a year, your heart would beat almost 42,048,000 times. Wow, so 100,000 per day. <sighs> So when my heart's racing, it's really beating. All right, you're on the board, Pamela, with a win right there. Here's your next question. Oh, we're going to skip the music for a minute. Does your heart, does a woman's heart beat faster or slower than a man's heart? Does a woman's heart beat faster or slower than a man's heart? Wait for the Your answer? Um, <laughs> I would have to say... Um, I would say it beats faster than a man's heart. Pamela is on a roll. <laughs> it is faster. Oh, that's why you have Google. <laughs> <laughs> it is faster. Men usually will have larger hearts, but a woman's average heartbeat is faster than a man's by almost eight beats per minute. Yep. Wow. Wasn't that, is that interesting? Were you? Did you ever think? Did you realize that, Pamela? It's kind of fascinating, isn't it, to find that out? I do because my heart beats fast all the time. So I was just thinking about life in general and how my heart is beating so fast. So it has to beat faster than men's because, hey, we've given birth before. So. <laughs> I love it. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. All right, we're back with our contestant on the Magic Ball Health Game, Pamela, founder and creator of Glucose SOS. She's playing along tonight with us. And our expert panel, including Patricia Addy Gentle, who's working the um, drum machine as well as... Ooh la la. Oh, the symbols. I love that. All right, here you go, Pamela. Uh, you're helping us raise awareness for heart health. Here's the question. How many miles of blood vessels does your heart pump blood through? Wow. Is it 20,000 miles of blood vessels? Is it 40,000 miles of blood vessels? Is it 60,000 miles of blood vessels? Or is it 80,000 miles of blood vessels? You want to phone a friend? Pamela? Hello? I'm so sorry. i so sorry I hit my phone <laughs> with my ear. So <laughs> I'm here. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I am at a loss with that one. Maybe um, 
Uh, six, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60, 60,000 miles of blood vessels, including arteries, veins, and capillaries. That's long enough to go around the world more than twice. Blood flows continuously through your body's blood vessels, and your heart is the pump that makes it all possible. Wow. I love it. Oh, Patricia, what are you bringing into the audience? We've got one more question for you before we go on to our live circus entertainment, um, Pamela. So here's for the final question tonight. True or false, heart disease has been found in 30,000-year-old mummies. Is that true or false? And we want to hear from you. Feel free to make an answer on that one. Mummies? Mummies? What was your answer? Mummies? Did you say heart disease is found in 30-year-old mummies? 30,000-year-old mummies. I would say that's mummies. true. Uh, 30,000. I say in that's 30, true. 30,000-year-old mummies. I love that little bell thing you're playing tonight, Patricia. That's true, right? That, that is true. That is true. An Egyptian research team uncovered the earliest documented case of coronary atherosclerosis in a princess who died in her early 40s and lived between 1580 and 1550 B.C. Of other mummies studied, a sampling of the elite in ancient Egypt almost half showed evidence of atherosclerosis in one or more of their arteries, calling into question our perception of atherosclerosis as a modern disease. Not so more than after all. I love it. And, um, Pamela, you did so amazing. Guess what? For helping us raise awareness for diabetes and heart health tonight and being such a good sport and a generous person, you're going to help us give away to all those lucky people coming to Clued In free samples of glucose SOS for everyone who joins us for Clued In on Diabetes Alert Day, Tuesday, March 26th in New York City. Go to cluedin.org for more information. Pamela, tell everybody else where they can purchase glucose SOS. Um, Amazon. Uh, we have variety packs on walmart.com. Um, obviously, through my partners, um, www.advocate, A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E, meters, M-E-T-E-R-S, dot com. I love it. All right. And we never... And we have it at Walmart. We have it as major retailers as well, so... I, I can't wait to see you on uh, Shark Tank. And in the meantime, Why you not? and I will be listening to a lot of heart music. Coming up, we're going to go over one of the biggest top... Hot topics in health with Pam, uh, with Patricia Addy Gentle, but right now for Pamela we have another strong that's straight up rock and roll with uplifting lyrics for people who've been discouraged by love. Here's never courtesy of Sony Music.
Welcome back to Mark Society's Late Night with musical inspiration from rock and roll band Heart and the Wilson sisters, Anne and Nancy Wilson. I'm your host, Mr. Diabetic. Now it's time for some hot topics in health with Patricia Addy Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. And you brought along. Um, next, so next time, no animals in the studio, just for the record. <laughs> but hey, why I'll not? <laughs> Let's talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to heart health and this disturbing trend that I read that young women um, are are being uh, have an increased risk of diabetes. Uh, excuse me, young women have an increased risk of developing heart disease. What what's that about? Can you explain what they're talking about in these new studies? Well, in in these studies, it's been found that young women are being hospitalized more and more. The rate has increased over the uh, last few years of young women being hospitalized with heart attacks. And so uh, that says a lot to us. Um, The underlying factors have been found to be that hypertension and diabetes rates have increased as well. And also it appears that... A lot of these young women are black or African-American, and it seems that probably um, young women, young black women, are being especially hard hit with uh, this particular finding. And it's it's confusing because, you know, I know from following Go Red uh, from the American Heart Association about women and heart disease, a lot of symptoms of, like, heart attacks and other heart issues in the cardiovascular realm, uh, cardiovascular disease realm, are different uh, signs and symptoms than what men experience, which probably have gotten much more media attention. So that could also be part of the issue too, right, that no one's seeing these signs or symptoms early because they're not aware of them? Quite true, and sometimes those signs and symptoms are minimized because it's not like that um, attention-grabbing severe pain, uh, clutching pain in the heart or in the chest that hits with men. Sometimes it's a subtle type of sign that a woman may have, such as uh, uh, neck pain or a pain in the tooth area, or sometimes it can even be headache. But uh, And a lot of women are presenting with stomach pain. Sometimes it's mistaken as being indigestion or anxiety in a lot of cases. So um, not to minimize the assessment um, that is done by the provider, but sometimes it's just not taken as seriously when a woman presents with these subtle types of findings as well. So um, hypertension and other underlying causes are being undertreated, underdiagnosed and undertreated because it's not really looked at as being something significant. And I think I mentioned this on that much uh, podcast, but I think it bears uh, repeating that daytime superstar Susan Lucci experienced symptoms three times before she did anything, and the last time she experienced uh, symptoms for a heart attack, she really thought her bra was too tight. So, you know, I think also we tend to um, figure, you know, we come up with these ideas about what it could be rather than just tackling the real issue. And I know... For a lot of people, and I think I uh, talk about Pamela saying she raised two daughters with um, type 1 diabetes. You're the last one on the priority list, listeners. You've got to kind of move yourself up the list 
and make sure you're taking care of yourself. If you feel like there's something wrong or, you know, something's going on, they really need to stop for a minute and make sure they're addressing their own issues and then helping uh, their family after that. And that's not being selfish. That's just being smart. Absolutely, and not just saying that providers are are looking, uh, minimizing these symptoms. The women do themselves, and I have experienced um, having women talk to me, especially young women, will say things like, um, even when a provider has made a diagnosis or made a suggestion, it's like, I don't really think I have high blood pressure. Perhaps I just have a little bit of stress or it was just the wrong time of the day or something particular that was happening that particular day, and I don't think I have high blood pressure. Uh, All of these pills that they continue to prescribe are not for me. I'm too young for that. So sometimes it's looked at as this is an old person's disease, and I'm not going to even think that it's happening to me. So not only is it the provider overlooking the symptoms and minimizing, but consumers themselves do the same thing. And so we need to take a look and be more cognizant of those numbers and and, and don't settle for one examination or one test, but self-testing, test the blood, the blood pressure at home under other circumstances and conditions as well. I think that's so important. In all these last five months that you and I have been talking about heart health and diabetes, the one thing that keeps coming back to me over and over again is knowing and being aware of your blood pressure, and that's just not knowing it in the doctor's office once annually for men or, you know, if you're living with diabetes, hopefully you're going in every three months for that A1C test and they're taking your vital signs. But there's still so much confusion around blood pressure. And you are so good at taking complicated information and streamlining it and making it easy for people to understand. What tell our listeners tonight about blood pressure and why that is such an important number to be aware of and to use as a tool in your toolkit for managing your diabetes as well as your overall diabetes wellness? Well, our blood pressure is actually measuring the resistance in our vessels. And so it's the the amount of pressure, once the heart beats, the amount of pressure that's being exerted on those vessels as it flows through the arteries, as it flows through the veins. So we're looking at how much pressure um, is being exerted on the vessel, and the the higher the pressure, then the more damage to the vessel. So you have that potential that a, ves- a vessel will occlude itself, constrict itself, or explode, rupture. And so, you know, sometimes that will lead to, well, that will always lead to a heart attack or a stroke, depending on what happens in the vessel. So we have to be cognizant about those numbers. Blood pressure is very significant, and a blood pressure 130 um, is, is significant. If you're above that, then you need to be looking at further care and diagnosis. If that bottom number is over 80, 85, then you definitely need to seek attention. So we need to know what our numbers are, and like we said prior, don't just trust a number that's done at your physical exam just one day a year. 365 days a year are significant, and so we need to know what our blood pressures are at varying times of the day, varying times of the month throughout the year. So we can't settle for just looking at that one-time 
blood pressure reading and saying I'm fine. Well, you know, and a lot of people look at these numbers. We both know this. You deal with so many people in the Atlanta uh, area, and we've dealt, we've worked together uh, all over the country providing outreach. We know that people assign judgments to these numbers, and and unfortunately put a lot of weight around shame and blame around bad numbers that they consider to be bad. And as you heard at the beginning of the show with Jill Weisenberger, that it's all about the language we use, not the doctor's language to the patient, but sometimes just the language language inside our head. And so telling yourself that these are numbers are important pieces of information and not judgment is also kind of critical in how you activate a health plan and make your diabetes dazzle, right? Absolutely. And we have to work on re-engineering our minds and our thinking as providers so that we do use language that is more appeasing and pleasant and more tasteful um, for a patient rather than a test. Perhaps it's just, you know, a record or a number or whatever, but a test always is looked at as, um, you know, I'm going to test your blood pressure. I'm going to test your blood sugar. It's looked at as either you pass or you fail. So sometimes we just have to, you know, let's have a record or a recording and, and see what these numbers, what are your trends, what are you looking like. These numbers are significant. Talk to your doctor about it. Not so much that you're bad or you didn't do so good or you have failed this test. So it's a lot in reengineering our minds, our way of presenting, the way we, we present it to the consumer, and then the way that the consumer is actually perceiving what we're saying. No, I agree. One of the things I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is this term heart failure, and you heard me at the top of the show talking a little bit about my own personal failures as a way to let people know that, um, if they're having troubles right now, the struggle could be real, and that it might it probably, hopefully, will be temporary, and that doesn't mean that other people aren't struggling either. You were a part of the Divabetic Makeover experience right there from the very start when we piloted it in 2006 in Atlanta, Georgia. We went to the Fox Theater. As much as I talked about <laughs> the failure of not getting sponsorship after, which, you know, um, was a little bit difficult and discouraging for me. Certainly none of that would ever overshadow the tremendous experience and joy and um, pride I have in what we we did together and how many people we helped through that program. And here I am on the eve of my next program, Clued In, in New York City. And fortunately you won't be here with us, but you'll be here in spirit. And I just wanted to go back, Patricia, because I sent you a link to an old video we did from Makeover. And just, um, you know, it's always, it's always great to reminisce. I wanted to get your feelings, if you could go all the way back in time to Fox Theater the night before we presented that event, what you were thinking you were getting yourself into. <laughs> I didn't have a clue. Looking back at that uh, video, it really was a stroll down memory lane, and it was a nice stroll because we have evolved. We have become so much more than what we started out, and we have reached so many people in such significant ways, not in the clinical setting, not in the traditional way of presenting information, but in a more tasteful, more, um, I guess, aesthetically uh, tasteful kind of uh, environment so that it, it's a fun, 
field way of presenting the information and and I feel that our audience has accepted and perceived it that way uh, something that's more tolerable more palatable to the tongue so uh, I do feel like we have done tremendous work, and we have grown by leaps and bounds. So, Max, don't ever look at anything that was done by Divabetic as a failure, but it has opened doors for new opportunities. So I applaud you. You've done well. Well, and I I uh, applaud you, and I'm just so thankful I took that challenge, and I urge everyone to kind of challenge themselves. Pamela challenged herself by releasing Glucose SOS and taking that to market, and she's having tremendous success. Dr. Joan and Jill, same thing with their books. And I'm going to have the chance again with Cluden coming up on Diabetes Alert Day, March 26th, right here in New York City. Hey, I want to thank all my guests for tuning in tonight and tell you, don't miss April's Diabetes Late Night Podcast because guess who we're saluting, Patricia? Our diabetic inspiration, Luther Vandross, on the eve of the Vandross 2019 live tribute concert, which will be happening at Ashton and Simpson's Sugar Bar on Luther's anniversary of his birthday, Saturday, April 20th. It's sold out, ladies and gentlemen, but it's still going to be a good time. I hope you follow us on Facebook. Check out all our videos on YouTube and come to Divabetic on Facebook or uh, go to our website, divabetic.org. Remember, every diva and every dude has an entourage, and we're so glad to be part of yours. We have never played hard rock on this podcast before, Patricia. It was a, it was a good show. It was a fun show, right? It was. It was quite different, but it was fun. So, so that means maybe we'll be playing some classical and opera, and my dream always to play polka. With that said, I thought it only be fitting to close this podcast with one of Hart's biggest power ballads ever, what About Love, courtesy of Sony Music. Thanks for tuning in. You've been happy.